I'm glad that I was forced to be out in nature because then I don't know if Spirit Rangers would have happened. This is The Sparkcast, a bi-weekly show where we explore the creativity, technology, and business of CG. I'm your host, Marina Antunes. Carissa Valencia spent her youth traveling between the bustling metropolis of San Diego and the peaceful Santa Inez Chumash Reservation. Growing up with a foot in both of those worlds deeply affected both the stories Carissa tells and how she tells them. In our conversation with Carissa, she shares insights into what it's like to craft stories for young children, the process of indigenizing her award-winning series Spirit Rangers, and how her native identity and being a woman have shaped her storytelling. Here's our conversation with Carissa Valencia. In your bio, it says that you grew up between the reservation and the city. What was I like? So I, um, yes, I'm basically like a Southern California mutt and grew up all over SoCal. Um, my mom's family is in San Diego and my dad's family is on the reservation in San Inez. So I grew up between the two because my parents are divorced. Looking back now, it was just fascinating, like how much of a whiplash it was going between the two. Because when I was like home on the reservation, everything was like really indigenous and loud and proud native. And then I would go back home to to the city where like, you know, people just are not as educated about the indigenous culture and like reading all my textbooks that would talk about the Shumash used to live here and they used to do this. And I would just be sitting there like, I'm right here. What are you talking about? Like, I'm still in the present tense. So it was like kind of crazy going between the two. And it took me a while to really kind of step into my indigenous identity because it was just hard being in the city, getting all the dumb questions. And I just didn't want to talk about it. But I'm really happy that now here I am, <laughs> loud and proud native, making an indigenous show. I, that's a really interesting point. Like this fact that, you know, you're there, but you're not seen and you're young. And, you know, there's all these pressures when you're, you know, a teenager and preteen to, you know, you want to be popular, you want to fit in, you want to have friends, but you're also fighting this like very personal cultural thing that other people don't even really, they're blind to it. How do you navigate that as a, as a young person? You know, like, I think it was really, it was really hard, truthfully. Like I felt invisible a lot of the time, at least my indigenous side felt really invisible. And like, I, it's funny you talking about like, just trying to fit in. Like, I still remember there was one time my dad really wanted me to learn how to like jingle dress dance or like traditional dance in the powwows. And he like was like, I'll make the dress for you myself and really wanted me to do it. I was like maybe eight or nine at the time. And I said no, because I wanted to join Spice Girls Club instead. <laughs> and that's what all my friends were doing. That's what was cool. Like air quotes, what was cool. And now looking back, I'm like, Ugh, I wish I took him up on learning my culture then. Because I think, you know, as a native kid forming your identity, you're kind of pulled between those two things. And I think it took me a long time to realize like, you know, it's okay to be both. You can be, I like consider myself like an urban native, which is like growing up more in the city. And I, you know, there is a way to be both. There's more than one way to be native. How is it different as somebody that straddles both? You know, you have one experience as a native person in, you know, suburbia. How is it as a suburban person on the reservation? 
it was interesting because like, you know, being a city kid coming back home to the res sometimes was a culture shock. I know like at the time when I was growing up, our casino was just like this little tent and um, it was really rural and there was like res dogs running around everywhere. And I think like it was such um, a special time because there wasn't a lot of distraction and I got to, you know, be outside and get connected to the trails and the trees and do a lot of camps. I was um, a camp counselor for my tribe's camp, which is called Camp Kalawashak. And that's where we would like take the kids out for the day and like learn songs and our, you know, stories and the plants. And as much as it was for them to learn, it was also for myself to learn all these things. And it was just a really special time. So I'm glad that I was forced to be out in nature because then I don't know if Spirit Rangers would have happened. (laughs) (laughs) Storytelling comes very natural and it's very ingrained in Native culture. When did you know you wanted to be a storyteller? I feel very lucky that I always knew I wanted to write. I always knew, even when I was like in kindergarten, my mom still has this um, little book that I wrote, like what my dream job was. And it was always to be a writer. So I just knew I wanted to be a storyteller and feel lucky that I knew that because it was always the lighthouse I was aiming for when I was in school. I did my undergrad at the University of San Diego um, and studied like creative writing and then decided to take a chance on myself to learn how to write for TV and then went to um, grad school in Syracuse, New York and loved it and was like, these are my people. This is awesome. And um, moved to L.A. in 2013 and have been telling stories ever since. I can't believe someone pays me to make cartoons for a living. (laughs) (laughs) So storytelling was always a part of, you know, something that you wanted to do. But when did you discover that it was animation where you were going to, you know, tell those stories? Oh, yeah. I, oh gosh, I'm a huge animation nerd. Love cartoons. I've always loved cartoons. I think the ones um, that really influenced me were Miyazaki films. And like looking back now, I realize why I was drawn to them so much, which is like a lot of his films were showing off the Japanese folklore, but also weaving in some of those modern characters like in Spirited Away. And I just loved that, that he would explore those two together. And that's something like I do with a lot of my stories now. So I think that was a big influence for me. And then also I'm a 90s baby. So I watched all of those Disney movies and like loved the big worlds and the hero stories and um, superhero stuff. And yeah, just love cartoons. It's the best. It's a very specific type of storytelling for young children because you're creating a show that or a story that speaks to them, but also speaks to the parents and all the ages in between. How do you start to find the balance of, you know, where that's the stories that you want to tell, like kind of where they might fit in? This is a good question. It's so funny because I like never saw myself landing in the preschool space. I really was like, that's baby stuff. I don't want to write that. Um, And then when I started working with Chris Nee and saw her style of preschool storytelling, I was blown away. Like my first day on the job, I had to distribute a script out to the network. So I was reading it to proof it. And it was a script called Hannah the Brave. And it was about this little girl who had cancer and um, had lost one of her dolls. And I just like couldn't believe that this type of storytelling was able to be done for such a um, young audience. And it really opened my mind to like, wow, like if these are the types of stories we could tell, like what else could we do? So it really pushed me as a storyteller to write for them because I think the younger you go, the harder it is to write because you have to make it 
engaging, exciting, you know, friendly. The animation has to look, you know, like in Spirit Rangers, our characters are very like, they look really huggable and sweet, um, not too scary or intense because preschoolers are so earnest and mean so well. And they're very literal at that age. And the humor is also a little different too. Like I had to learn really quick, like, they like at Nickelodeon where I came from before their motto at the time when I was there was that they put the art in fart. So like they would just throw a fart joke at anything. And that was very much Nickelodeon's brand. And if we did that in our preschool shows, a lot of the preschoolers wouldn't really connect with that. They wouldn't think it was as funny because they're still so emotional. So it was such a challenge to find another type of humor and um, flex that muscle to be silly for the preschoolers. They're just so sweet. And I think I take it very seriously, this responsibility of creating these characters that are their first heroes or their first friends or um, the first people they look up to. And I think it's um, really beautiful. And I'm so glad with Spirit Rangers now I'm creating indigenous heroes for them to look up to. How do you fine tune the material so that it works for a preschool audience? Because I think that that's really interesting as well. Because like you mentioned, you don't have any kids. So how do you how do you start to kind of figure out what does work and what doesn't work? When I was at Disney, we would do testing. And so we did get to see the kids' reactions live. Like we'd go to a preschool and um, share a version of the story with them and see how they would react. <clears throat> and that was always like very adorable no matter what happened. Um, but it was also like, you know, kids are sometimes, if they didn't have lunch that day yet, or they were like in a bad mood, then they're like not really paying attention. So sometimes the findings weren't always as accurate. <clears throat> so I went back to like the method that Chris really taught me was like not to write for kids and like assume what they want, but to write for you as a kid. What would you like? What what did what were like things that got you excited and interested? So that's really who I'm writing for. I'm writing for myself and like little Carissa and what she would have loved. And and I think that just comes out more authentic versus trying to like predict what they're gonna like. So let's talk a little bit about Spirit Rangers and where, like how the show came to be. Like, did you have the story already? How did it end up at Netflix? What was that entire process like? Yeah, so Spirit Rangers, I had the idea um, back in 2019 and really wanted to pitch it around. But I knew like whatever studio I pitched it to, they were probably going to pair me with a um, another experienced showrunner and who was probably, um, we'll just say, straight white guy. <laughs> that made me a little hesitant. Not that there aren't great ones out there. There's some good allies out there, but I was just nervous. Um, and then Chris Nee got an overall deal at Netflix. So it, the light bulb just went off. I was like, she's somebody that I can pitch to. I really love her type of storytelling. And she's somebody who's been othered in um, entertainment herself, just within her own community. So she understands what it feels like. So I um, took my two-page document and sent it to Chris. Um, we actually had had lunch at Netflix. She was like showing me her new office and stuff and was like, if you have anything, let me know. And I was like, I do. So I sent it over to her and she loved it. Literally the next day, she was like, you're going to see a development offer in your email. Like, this is the perfect preschool show. I'll never forget that. She told me the perfect preschool show. And so we were in development um, in 2019 together. Um, I wrote the pilot and then we started um, 
looking for visual development artists. And then Netflix wanted to do an animation test. So we found a studio, Super Prod Animation, who are all the way in France. And just really, they resonated with like my show Bible and what I was looking for. And that animation test blew us all away. It was extremely high quality, like feature level animation. Um, and I remember we were nervous at first. We're like, can you think they can do this for, you know, the whole season? This is really good. And they were like, they assured us. They're like, we got this. And now that Spirit Rangers is out, like they absolutely deliver. The show looks gorgeous. It looks like a movie. Um, they've been such amazing partners ever since. That two-page document that you had, I'm curious about how that came to be. So you had this idea. When did you start sort of finessing and what was included in that document? How long did that take to prepare? Yeah, so um, the document, you know, like I think I was on Vampirina at the time when I was putting it together. And I kind of, I was always inspired by our, um, the traditional stories I heard growing up as a kid, like how did the condor get its black feathers? How did the chipmunk get its stripes? All these origin stories of how the animals and plants came to be. And I knew it was perfect for preschoolers because I was working on a preschool show and was like, oh my God, this is, this is exactly the type of storytelling I'd love to do for it. Um, and it really clicked for me when I went to a bear ceremony on my reservation. And that's when we honor the bear coming out of hibernation and our dancers put on these skins and they move and act like the bear. And I was so inspired by that, just like, because in my culture, um, the we do believe in the ability to transform. And it's for us, it's our bear doctors. They have like the highest honor to transform into bears. So I was thinking about that while I was at this um, ceremony and was thinking like, gosh, how cool would it be if like a little kid found a bear skin and realized that they had this gift to transform. So there was Cody. He was the first one. And then um, from there, I picked two other animals to represent land, air, and water, um, which was Summer, who's a red-tailed hawk, and then Eddie, who is a turtle. And then um, I had my characters for a while, but just didn't have the world yet. And then it all clicked into place when I had realized that I have never met an indigenous park ranger before, which was crazy to me. Like as a Californian, I feel very lucky that I've gone to all the national parks. And I was thinking like, wow, like we're the original stewards of this land. And I was thinking like my dad, even he can name every flower and oak tree and like paw print in the uh, dirt. And I was just like, "How? I, that's so crazy to me. I'd never met one before. So in my dream world, we would be with a family of park rangers who's taking care of their land, you know, with science, technology, modern tools, but also with their culture. It's like this preconception that you think you know how something is, and then you realize, oh, wait, I've been looking at this wrong the whole time. And your show is like a perfect encapsulation of that. I'm curious about how the elders and, you know, the people in the community that are like your leaders that you look up to, like how they react to the stories that you're telling and how they feel about seeing themselves represented in this way. Yeah, that's like emotional for me to think about. Everyone's just been so proud. I've been getting so much love. I think it's very funny. My dad was telling me <laughs> that he thinks it's really funny now that the show came out. It's amazing how many new cousins I have. Everybody's been reaching out like, I'm your cousin. I'm your cousin. I love Spirit Rangers. <laughs> so my family has grown <laughs> in a way. 
Um, but that just means like my tribe and our villages, our neighboring tribes are just so proud to see us on screen. I think um, especially for California natives, like a lot of the there's so little representation already, but a lot of the um, films and TV shows that we have about indigenous culture is usually like the plains or um, like up north, even like Alaskan uh, stories get told a lot, but not really Californians. And like as a little kid forming your identity in the world, you're, you know, connecting with these characters because they are family in a way, but our cultures are so different. Like my tribe's headdresses look nothing like what the traditional ones you see um, in media are, or like our houses look so different. And even like our reservation land is really different. Like my reservation, like when people think of reservations, they often think of um, really isolated, remote places that like don't have a lot of access to uh, things. And those do exist for sure. But mine, we're in Southern California. We're in wine country. Michael Jackson's house is around the corner. Oprah's house is nearby. It's beautiful. You can see the ocean. Um, and it's so cool to show off like another version of a reservation and indigenous uh, perspective. Talking about indigenous perspective and giving voice to creatives, one of the things that I found was really interesting in your conversation was, you know, indigenizing the show and not just what's on screen, but behind the camera as well. And one of the things that really impressed me was this idea and this concept of taking chances. Mm -hmm. Someone had asked you about, you know, was it hard to find writers? Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, no, because they were always there. Nobody just ever asked for them. All of a sudden you say, who do you know? And there's like 50 of them taking that chance. Like, where do you even start with that? Mm -hmm. And convincing, you know, the studios and the executives to give you that freedom to be able to say, listen, this is going to make things better all around. Because it's a big step. And it's a big change from like the traditional production style. Like um, something I'm really proud of is that we asked for the permissions of the Shumash tribe and the Cowlitz tribe to base the family on them. That's not built into the production schedule. Like I had to be like, this is really important for us to do. We have to make time for it because if we don't get their sign off at the beginning, we'll just be in like a lot of trouble later on. And I'm just really glad Netflix just really trusted me. They really trusted me to tell my own story, not only from a creative perspective, but from a production perspective. I was like, this is what I'm looking out for everybody. I'm protecting you guys too. If you're doing this, this is what we have to do. Um, so I think like taking those steps and making the time for it is what makes Spirit Rangers even more special. So you touched a little bit on the visual style of the, of the show and how amazing it looks. And it's so <laughs> bright and colorful yes. and just like you turn it on and right from the get-go, it's just like this treat. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about coming up with the visual storytelling and the world building and how that all came together? Because they they all look slightly different, Mm -hmm. but it's just such a vibrant, energizing show. Thank you. I like really attribute this to Super Prod and our art director, uh, Marie Delmas, because it's um, it was a big ask. It could have easily looked like rainbow garbage up there, but they found a way to balance it all. And I was asking a lot of them. I wanted every spirit to have tribal markings and not just any tribal markings. Every single spirit has markings that are specific to whatever region they're from. So for our California spirits, you'll see that they have this awesome rock art on their scales and their fur. Um, But if we're meeting somebody from the Pacific Northwest, like the Thunderbirds, they have a coastal Salish style 
also the lines are really thick and they have those crescent moon um, shapes on them. It's really detailed and specific, but I think it's um, so pleasing on the eye at the end of the day. And then goes back to my mission of showing that natives are not a monolith. We all look different. Even our spirits look different because they're from different areas. So it was really awesome to see that all come to life because that was a vision I kind of had from the get-go. I wanted two different worlds. I wanted our human ranger world, had to see the Sky Cedar family in like modern everyday outfits. They've got boots, pants, you know, glasses and use drones um, and not too stylized. But then in Spirit Park, that's where I wanted to have fun with the style and celebrating all these um, native art styles. So it's really cool to see you know, that from that two page document to now here we are <laughs> and Super Pred took it and ran with it. Was there any, ever a moment where you thought, I'm not ready to do this? This is too much to take on all the time. And you know, what's funny is like a lot of my cast and crew told me how much they identify with Eddie because he in the first in the pilot episode, he kind of has imposter syndrome. He gets his junior ranger badge and mom tells him he's ready. And he's like, I don't think I'm ready. I don't think I can do this. And kind of hides the whole episode until he leans on his siblings to help him. And I think that's exactly how I felt in the beginning. I was like, when you think of the word showrunner, you're not necessarily imagining somebody like myself. And I think like I had to give myself permission to be like showrunners can look like anything. We can be anything. We can come from different backgrounds. And um, my story is important to tell and I want to tell it. Netflix believes in me and I'm going to deliver on it. So I think with the help of a lot of our animation veterans, my whole team was able to succeed. That's like the energy of this casting crew is so cool because it's it's all these like first timers like myself who are like, we got something to prove. We're like so excited to like get this opportunity. And then on the other half, we have amazing animation veterans who've been in the business for a long time and they're able to help us along the way. Like Chris Nee is um, an EP on the show as well. And she's been there to help me navigate really tough conversations with like getting notes or even like getting microaggressions from executives. Um, she was there as a safe space for me. I also had Kent Redeker on the team. He was a consulting producer who was like an experienced showrunner who was there to really like walk me through the production pipeline so I could succeed as well. And we did that in so many different departments. Like in our music department, we brought on consulting producers and um, our consultants are really, we had one consultant who's been in the industry for a long time. So when she was hiring out consultants who'd never done this before, she had to kind of train them. Like you have to hit a deadline, otherwise they'll kill the story. So I think it's been this amazing partnership between two different uh two different sides of the of the industry. You know, as a woman of color leading a show in a space that is largely white male dominated, how do you even start to deal with some of those aggressions that people don't even know they're doing them? This was something I um, navigated the moment I started at Netflix, honestly. Like I think because I'm young, like a lot of people would assume I was just the assistant or the intern. And then people would be like, no, she's the boss. She's in charge of all of us. And it was like to see their face, they were like, oh, like they have to unlearn a little bit themselves. But I think a big thing that was a hurdle in the beginning was when I first started at Netflix, we did just like a quick presentation on like what's up and coming in the preschool space. Just I just shared the log line at our town hall. 
And the next day I got emails from people like showrunners who I hadn't met yet, but like looked up to and they reached out to me like trying to warn me. They were like, don't you know that you're being racist? Like you can't talk about spirit animals. Like, how are you doing that? Like that's, and I was like, I was shocked. I was like, well, are you native? And then they'd be like, no, I'm not. But like, I really want to be careful of like being mindful of indigenous people. And I was like, I am indigenous. Like I am indigenous. These are my stories. Like my tribe does believe in transforming just because Hollywood has messed it up in the past doesn't mean me and my team can't tell our own stories. So it's something I had to like really realize this was going to happen. I have to hold my ground and give myself the pep talk of a lifetime to like set those boundaries and keep aiming for that standard I was hoping to hit. Every production has its challenges. For you, what do you think was the most challenging aspect of making Spirit Rangers and how did you guys overcome it? I think it was very ambitious to include so many different tribes because I wanted to make sure everyone was so um, catered to and A lot of these tribes hadn't uh, worked in entertainment before, so getting them to adhere to a schedule has been a challenge, but amazing that we got there. I also think um, a lot of like the best challenge that I'm so proud of is like finding and creating new indigenous talent. Like that's been like really hard to do. It wasn't hard to find people, but bringing them in and making sure they were set up for success, like that was a little tricky to navigate. And but the whole way. Netflix has been so supportive. And anytime I needed something, they were there. They were like, do you need more support here? Do you need more support there? Um, So because of that, like we've really created this amazing team and the product I'm just so proud of. Sounds like it's one of these shows that had from the get go, there was the support that you needed was in place. That's so important. Can you talk a little bit about uh, mentorship and how that worked for you personally and with the rest of the crew. Yeah, it's some mentorship I've like learned a lot about on this whole project because that's really how we came to be. I learned a lot from people like Chris Nee and Kent Redeker. I would consider them my mentors in this process. Because of that, they've really instilled in me the importance of mentorship and taking that time. So now here I am in a hiring position and I'm ready to do the same. So all my staff writers, a lot of all of them, I think it was their first job except for Kelly. And I made sure to like take the time so they were set up for success. It's like extra work on my plate, but it's so worth it in the end if they're successful and feel supported and can tell these awesome stories. So then they're taking it with them, that importance of mentorship. And I think it just trickles down from there um, and continues, continues on. How do you stay creative? Like you draw a lot of inspiration from, you know, your history and your culture, but how do you sort of conceptualize that in a way that will then, you know, convert into stories? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. I feel like it's funny, like when I'm in the middle of production right now, so it's hard to find that space to be creative and like give myself that permission to like pie in the sky, like dream really big. I like to stay creative in other areas and just kind of let my brain turn off. Like I love playing music. That's really fun for me. And also like really just turning my brain off. And I'm a huge reality TV fan. So I watch everything that is not good for the brain to let my brain relax. And then sometimes those reality TV characters are all walking TV shows personally. They're so fascinating. (laughs) So I turn to them for some inspiration. (laughs) 
As someone that is creating opportunities for others and really sharing, I, I think, you know, this, the whole see it, be it is so important and it really does work. What would you say to someone that's interested in telling stories that they don't see on screen or represented in any sort of media? What would you be your advice to them? My advice would be to do it. Your stories are important. And um, now is our time. Like, I just feel there is this energy in the animation community that everyone wants diverse stories and stories they've never seen before. And I think studios are feeling a little risky and taking chances on different things they wouldn't normally do, whether that was like the type of storytelling or a specific showrunner or even an art style. I think um, now is our time. So I would suggest like finding your animation community, sharing those ideas with them, practice pitching, and then getting yourself in the room where you can so you can share those stories. Because I do think executives and people on the buying side are eager to learn more. And I think um, there's also more executives that are from diverse backgrounds and they're there too. And as gatekeepers, you know, they can really say yes or no to a lot of um, historic shows. And I think now we've got some good allies in there that are that are willing to take a risk. And that was our conversation with creator and showrunner Carissa Valencia. You can check out Spirit Rangers now streaming on Netflix. The Sparkcast is a production of the Spark Computer Graphics Society. Opening and closing credits by Michael Edland. Editing and additional production support by Joshua Peterman. For more about SparkCG and our upcoming events, visit sparkcg.org.